Welcome to Interplay, Conversations in Music. This is your host, Michael Shapiro. I'm delighted to have somebody I should have known for 40 years, but I have only <laughs> recently met, Arthur Fagan, conductor and professor of music, uh, music director, I should say, of the Atlanta Opera, right. which is a fabulous place, and the professor of music and instrumental conducting at also the Indiana University Jacobs School of Music in Bloomington. Welcome, Arthur Fagan. Thank you for joining Interplay. Pleasure to be here, Michael. I first saw Arthur Fagan conduct in a video with my friend and mentor, Sergio Comissiona, when you won the first conducting competition of the Baltimore Symphony back in the 70s. I remember watching it on TV. And I was amazed at that point about how fast you were in accompanying soloists and I think singers, if I recall, that you didn't come you didn't come down until the breath was gone <laughs> to come down, <laughs> which leads me to a very interesting observation. Your conducting experiences are, of course, in orchestral and operatic uh, theater, but your opera work is really extraordinary throughout Europe and the United States, now in Atlanta. So, Arthur, are you a pianist originally? What is your background? I'm originally a pianist, although I studied violin, played horn through high school, and studied little clarinet, too. Right. But your knowledge of opera's got to be extremely intimate. Uh, did you work as a repetiteur in, in Europe? Yes, I started actually when I was 21. I left Curtis after one year to go to Frankfurt and to be a correpetitor, mit dirigierverpflichtung, as they say. Um, yeah, I had that contract. At the, at the Frankfurt Opera, I, I, I met Dohnani and I played for him when he was in New York conducting Falstaff at the Met. And to my surprise, he hired me. <laughs> That's wonderful. And when you worked... I want to just translate for our listeners and people who watch this program. Dirigier, explain what you just said, because I had that also in my contracts with Dirigier Verpflichtung, which sounds just dreadful, doesn't it? What well, does that mean? not actually. It's a good thing. It means you're hired basically as a corpetito with a as a as a coach, but you could be asked to conduct. So. And that happens when people get ill or they can't make it because they're going someplace else. So when you were there at Frankfurt, did that happen? Well, actually, when Dohnani um, hired me, I asked, so is there any chance I'll get to conduct? He said, yes, I'll put you on the podium at least once during your first year. So um, I was assisting him. It was December of my first season or November, and I was assisting him on Parsifal. And so oh, I went wow. up to him and I said, so, Herr von Dochlani, when are you going to let me conduct? So he said, okay, tomorrow you're going to do an hour of the Bühnen Orchestra Probe, which is a stage orchestra rehearsal of, of Parsifal. So that was my first time in the pit. I did about 45 minutes. Orchestra tapped their stance, which is very important in Germany, because if you don't get the approval of the orchestra, you don't, you don't get very far. And so Dovlani said, okay, it went quite well. Um, I cannot give a 21-year-old kid a Parsifal performance at the Frankfurt Opera, but since you were my assistant on Balo in Mascara, and I went, well, I'll give you a performance. And says so something, says something about Wagner and Verdi in Germany. 
Doesn't that? <laughs> yes. I yes. mean, we could we could take great pause with that comment, but go ahead. The, the, I want to hear more. <laughs> so then, did you do an unbalo in mascara? I did it balo in mascara, and he gave me another performance the following season. And then they did something very nice. They gave me a whole series of Swan Lake, not, not Swan Lake, excuse me, Sleeping Beauty performances to conduct. So I, I got about 25 performances during the following a, a season, during the following two seasons, with just an occasional opera, Balo and Mascara, and I did the Magic Flute too. And Sleeping Beauty, we should remark, of the three famous Tchaikovsky ballets, I think it's the most difficult, am I right? As far as what's going on in the orchestra? I don't know. I've, I mean, uh, I've, I've, I've only conducted the suite from Nutcracker, but I did do Swan Lake, which I took over at the Staatsoper in Berlin from Barenboim, who actually did the premiere. Right. I can't say that one is more difficult than the other. They're just they have different difficulties. I've conducted Nutcracker many times in the pit. I found that that's very straightforward. Uh, if you get the right. speed, if you get the speeds right, you know. <laughs> yeah, of course. My snowflakes were way too fast for what, what they were doing on stage. But well, when you look at the score, for example, of, of Sleeping Beauty versus the score of, of Swan Lake, they're quite different. I think Sleeping Beauty is very early, isn't it? I think uh, so. Those so many yeah. years ago, I don't remember. So many the years ago. Composition. So we could go through, you know, you went from this house to that house to that house, and then you had Dortmund, and you had so many wonderful orchestras in Antwerp and all over Europe. So when you were doing that, what brought you back here? To Well, actually, um, if I have to get into the whole history, I went to Frankfurt with the idea I'll stay a year, see how it goes, and, yeah. but I ended up staying 16 years. Right. I met my wife uh, through Tito Gobi, with whom I worked in Holland. And oh, my. I, I used to play for his summer workshop for two or three years. And, and really, he taught me everything I know about Italian opera. And um, I stayed for 16 years. We had two children. And at a certain point, they were going, you know, they were in in elementary school in Germany. And my wife said that she really would like to bring up the kids through high school in the United States. Wow. So within a period of one week, I had to choose between an offer to be Erster Kapellmeister, first Kapellmeister in Mannheim, or to go back to New York to become a cover conductor at the Met. <laughs> mm. And career-wise, of course, Mannheim would have been a better thing. But my wife said, look, you'll have an income and you'll and we'll be able to bring the kids up. So we moved back. I see. And I moved back to uh, Long Island where I grew up, and I used to commute every day to the city. But as things developed in, in the States in terms of conducting a lot of op uh, opera, and I also became music director of the Queen Symphony and got to conduct a lot of city opera, did a little bit of conducting at the Met, and we stayed 16 years. And then when my uh, Youngest daughter was graduating high school. Not my youngest, my middle daughter was graduating high school, and I only had a, a third daughter. We had the kids spaced very far apart. Mm -hmm. My wife said, well, you know, at this point, we can move back to Europe. And I had been guest conducting in Europe so I, all that time while I was in, living in New York, and there wasn't a problem. And that's when I took the job in Dortmund. So I was 16 years in Europe, six years in the States, six years back in Europe. <laughs> And not back in the States. <laughs> well, you know, it's very different being a composer who conducts as to, as opposed to a conductor who conducts. I mean, who really does it. Um, 
Did you ever feel feel the the need or a reason or impulse to write music? Well, you know, I did study a little composition and I did write pieces, but I didn't feel a strong urge to compose, probably mm-hmm. because I didn't think that I was good enough. Well, there are many people around who think they're very good enough and aren't Boris good enough, but it is the truth. Now, let's talk about opera, because I find this interesting in, as I'm now in the middle of writing my third opera. Right. When you study Mozart, for example, uh, let us say you're going to do Le Nozze de Figaro, The Marriage of Figaro. Right. What's your path? I know you know the piece. You've coached right. the piece. You've been a co-repetitor. You've done it in, in countless theaters. You've worked with all of these directors. You, you know the parts. But if you were going to study it again, what would you be your path into the piece from the get-go? Okay. I'll pretend that I don't know the Marriage of Figaro, and I'm, I have to learn it. All right. La Clemenza di Tito. No, <laughs> I don't know. You probably know, know, by the way. Okay, there you go. All right, so you're going to do La Clemenza de Tito. Now, let's stay with Figaro. Let's assume you don't know Figaro, which is impossible, but let's say you didn't. What would you tell anyone? What's their path into the mind of people like me who put down the notes? Well, I mean, there are two two major aspects. The first one, I mean, the, the libretti of Da Ponte are unbelievable, really. They are. And it's quite difficult to get into. I start actually with the piano vocal score. I mean, it's very easy. I mean, it's not a big deal to do it for the orchestral score either in a Mozart opera. It's not that, I mean, the, the instrumentation is not that complex. You can hear it easily in your head. Um, I mean, this is, I, I'm saying this starting with the libretto based on the fact that, you know, I've done a lot of research into performance practice of classical music, of of Mozart, and I've, you know, played a lot of Mozart. I played, you know, many sonatas, chamber music, and so forth. That's right. But um, I think with opera, basically, it's important to start also with the text. And... It's a rather, you know, it's a rather complex process. Some of some of what the uh, Ponte does is is extremely refined, and it takes a pretty intimate knowledge of Italian language. I think it's very important for all opera conductors to know in, Italian very well, mm-hmm. German probably, French when possible. Mm-hmm. I don't conduct, by the way, Russian operas because I don't speak the language. You know, mm-hmm. of course, you can conduct them, and you know, I've done many scenes from Russian operas and concerts, but uh, I feel in order to have authority also, especially if you have Italian singers in, 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 in a cast of an Italian opera, I mean, you have to, you have to know the language very well. So I'll, I'll do that. But then, you know, I'll go through the, you know, I, I'll go through Figaro and it's very hard to say how I would start from point zero because I actually worked, we worked Figaro with Max Rudolph. We talked about all the tempo relationships in the second act finale. We talked, you know, is, is there a basic pulse going through, through a, a lot of Figaro? And there is actually, and there is, and it works very well. And then the very important thing is, and uh, is, unless it's, a, unless it's the end of a finale where there's a lot of patter going on, the tempo that one chooses 
has to make the text come alive. Mm -hmm. You cannot pick a tempo based on whatever theories you have about what, you know, what is it, what is a presto or what is a, an andante at 6-8 in Mozart. You have to realize that the text has to cut, has in some way has to come alive. Mm -hmm. And, um, And then, of course, you could talk about, you know, Mozart's style, phrasing, about ornamentation of da capo arias, you know, if in, in the Figaro, uh, I'm just trying to think if there's, yes, of course, like in Dove Sono, the second, in the, in the da capo, there, there's, there's, there is room for real, real ornamentation. If they know how to do it, the ornamentation. Yeah, it depends, on, it, it depends upon a conductor being able to help with, you know, uh, yeah. find something that works, and it depends on a singer who's able to do it convincingly, too. Yeah. But I have worked with quite amazing singers. I have a recording of Rossini arias and duets with Kasarova and Flores at the very beginning of his career. Mm. And Kasarova was so immersed in a Rossini style that at every, this was recorded at the Bayerische Rundfunk with the uh, Munich Radio, Münster Rundfunk Orchestra. Great orchestra. Every single take, she improvised a diff different ornamentation. Good for her. It, it, I mean, how many people could do it? I think Bartoli could do it, but yeah. there are very, very few people who are able to do something like that. But talk to me about style now. You've just you've just gone there, and I'm going to push it. The style of Mozart is, of course, very different from the style of Fidelio of Beethoven. It's right. similar, but it's very different. I know that when we when we conduct or study first Fidelio as opposed to studying Figaro or Don Giovanni. It's a very different mindset. For example, the libretto is nowhere near as good in, you know, in Fidelio as it is in the De Ponte operas. It's just, you know, Shakespeare versus, I don't know what you would call that, that incredible mixed bag of Fidelio. And again, you have two different kinds of human beings. Mozart, this incredible talent of theater, and Beethoven, who was not necessarily a theater guy. So when you get into the style of those two pieces, when you're studying, at just studying point, I'm not saying what happens in the theater at the end, how are you approaching it? I mean, I think the problems in something like Fidelio are somewhat immense, are they not? Um, I've, done, I've done three productions of Fidelio, and I've done maybe eight or eight to ten productions of Figaro on my own. Um, they, they, are, they are quite immense. The whole introduction to the second act of Fidelio is, you have the feeling of really yes, right. Beethoven in, in, in that introduction. Right. Um, well, there are first, certainly some similarities. I think Fidelio was premiered on Teatro on der Wien, right? That's correct. And, in Vienna. and Figaro also, I mean, you know, there's a very strong Viennese aspect to both Figaro and, and Fidelio. Um, I mean, the aesthetic of Beethoven is so completely different from the aesthetic of, of Mozart. And Fidelio, you know, aside from, you know, some humorous relief with the Rocco aria and also right. Gentino and Marcellina. Mm -hmm. There's a very there's a very dark aspect to it's, Fidelio. It's magnificent that second act. What happens with Florestan and so forth? But I'm I'm going to the theater now. Yes. 
And here is the rub. The theater of Mozart, where things are really moving, that he understands how to move people across the stage, always, right. many people, one person, ten people, whatever it is, it's lacking in Beethoven. Yes, it's a lot. It, it's, it's a lot much of more static. Static. What we say in German, Inishkeit. Describe Inishkeit. the internal kind of emotions it's, going on. Right. And there's also the aspect of political op oppression in Fidelio that you also find in Egmont. Overlust, you know, the famous, the prisoner's area. It's phenomenal stuff. But is it really theater music or is it oratorio? I this would is say the issue. it's a little more oratorio style, really. This is the, this is the issue. You know, it's yeah. more Haydn than it is the Mozart of the stage. Let's go further, because I love talking to an, a person who knows this stuff so well. Verdi is such a big canvas, because you have the young man starting out with his first opera at La Scala, of all things, and then going through the theaters over the years, and then ending with this incredible relationship with another genius, Arrigo Boito. As, as far also, as, right. I mean, you want to talk about librettos. Otello, my God, it's amazing. It's better than Shakespeare. I don't I, know. I really do believe that as far as Othello versus Otello. Right. It's just a phenomenal thing. And so full step, you know, is a accumulation of various Shakespeare ideas gone through the the mind of Boito and then the mind of Verdi. I just recommend to our uh, listeners the uh, correspondence between Boito and Verdi. Oh. It's magnificent. Verdi. Yeah, the letters, which are translated now in English in a volume. But... Going to, for example, Otello and and Falstaff, which is a whole different kind of ethos. What is your way in to something like Othello, for example? Well, let's talk more about Falstaff because you know okay. I've done I've conducted ten different Verdi operas, but I have to admit that the two that I'm missing are Othello and uh, Forza. Ah, uh, okay. Well, I, I, has, I did many. That has to be remedied. It has to be remedied. You are at the Atlanta Opera. <laughs> Okay, <laughs> we haven't done an Otello since I've been there. All right, uh, but I've done. I did many performances of Falstaff, and my first, okay, my first experience Falstaff. with Falstaff was, you know, I was the first Kapellmeister in Holland in 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 the with the second company, which was in Enschede. I don't know if you know about that. Mm -hmm. Obra, it was called Opera Forum then, and it was Tito Gobi who was staging it. Oh my! A and the game day and the intendant had no interest in coming to all the six weeks of staging rehearsal. So I worked six days, six days a week for six weeks with Goldie mm. on Falstaff, which was a great, a great school. But let's, that's very interesting. Now you worked, I've spoken to other conductors in opera and I've asked the question, do you work closely with the director? And some of them have said, well, I don't have the chance, but others have said, when I can, I really want to. But you have just said you worked for many weeks with Gobi. Do you try oh, yeah. to do that every time you, you're involved in a I new do. production? And I do, and I had the tremendous fortune of playing six weeks of, in Frankfurt, playing six weeks of Tosca rehearsals with Jean-Pierre Ponel and six weeks of, Tosca, of Carmen rehearsals with Jean-Pierre Ponel. I learned more about opera from great directors in a way than I did from great conductors. That's a wonderful that. statement. Because Arthur, it's theater. And Arthur Fagan is a remarkable theater man. Apart from being a great conductor, I must say that. You know how to move move things from that pit. It's it, it's really remarkable. What uh, You know, I remember 
and Dohlani was the conductor for the Carmen, but he also, you know, he was a busy traveling conductor. He wasn't yeah. coming every day to the staging rehearsals. Right. And I remember mm. Pennell doing a musical rehearsal of the Carmen Quintet. Mm. I have yet to have uh, have worked with a conductor who could do such a good musical rehearsal on a piece like the Carmen Quintet. You're talking jump, but um, but um, but um, yeah, I won my audition to the Zurich Opera with playing that piece. By the way. Oh, very good. <laughs> um, but, you, but you talk about working with directors. And so that is perfect for this composer because I've been thinking greatly in writing my third opera now based on the Isaac Basheva Singer novel, The Slave, that – and I, I've done this in the past with my other two operas. But I more and more I think about when I'm writing the music, I'm writing the music through the eyes and body of each of the characters. Well, fantastic. By the way, I enjoyed I enjoyed the excerpts that I heard. Thank you. Of the slave, very much. Thank you. But the point of the matter is, when you study the greatest of operas, and my mentors and, and my goal is to replicate in my, in my voice what that person is thinking in that space. So, for example, we've just met, we've just met each other physically through this virtual medium. We've spoken on the phone a few times. Right. But, so the music that we have in facing each other is a different music than if I had never met you before and if it was the first time. That would have been a more formal music, wouldn't it not, internally. Right. Right. Now, it's, now it's, you know, two boys from Long Island who for some reason in 40 years never met each other. <laughs> and now we can laugh, <laughs> laugh at each other and with each other, you know, with this guy behind us who really knew, knew how to laugh. But, you know, the formality of laughter and drama is really what it's all about. Why do you think being a theater man, as far as a, and a, a great symphonic conductor, I might add, too, which we haven't gotten to, but as a theater man, why is comedy so much more difficult? That's a very good question. <laughs> um, why is comedy so much more difficult? There are so few of them. In opera, really good ones. Well, you've got a lot of the opera buffo, uh, uh, buffo stuff. Yes, you've got Italiana, you've got Bar, you've Barbiere, you've got you've got Cibarosa. I mean, you've got pl you've got plenty you've got plenty of stuff actually. But that's a certain kind of comedy of the period, right? I mean, can we name how many great comedies have been written in the twentieth century in opera? There've been comedic in moments. Twentieth century. I mean. Um, I did get to conduct the Ghost of Versailles a few performances in Chicago. Yeah, I, I was at the, the I was at the premiere. By the way, Bill Hoffman was my best friend. Really, yeah. I met him in Chicago at one point. And 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 John and I have been friends for thirty five years. But uh, Billy was my best friend in my life. So, really? I mean, yeah. So I mean, talk about talk about comedy. That does have comedic comedic moments, and those comedic moments are wonderful. I think. Yeah. In, well, Billy in, really he he was a very big Beaumarchais man, and uh, Da Ponte. He was very much attuned to it. Well, you've got some of La Mer Coupable, the third uh, the third installment of the Beaumarchais trilogy in in, right. in the Ghost of Versailles. That's right. It's just an interesting phenomenon because everybody's so serious in opera to be so serious, but to do something that's buffa and be able to move people around the stage, the way Bill Hoffman did in *The Ghost of Versailles*, was it's, it's rather unique, I think. It is, and I'm trying to think of the 20th century opera I've done. Well, *Midsummer Night's Dream* of a Britain. That's, I've done you know, that many times. 
Yeah. yeah. He tries his best to do it. Is it as good as the Mendelssohn? I don't know. Musically. Well, I don't think I don't think musically it is as good. And I'm happy to be doing Turn of the Screw right now. (laughs) Very, 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 very disturbing piece. Britain did disturbing bet very well. When you get right down to it, it's a sick piece. It's a sick piece. Well, so is Peter Pierce. I mean, Peter Pierce, for God's sake. Peter Grimes. Peter Grimes. I meant Peter Pierce. Peter Grimes, I I find to be a great opera, really, I do. It's a great opera, but talk about disturbing stories. And they had to... Tune it down from what it was originally, which was really, really sick. I should have mentioned, you know, Peter Pierce, I actually spent a day with uh, before Britain died uh, when he was in New York, uh, when I was at Juilliard. He came and I spent a day with him. And it's one of the great experiences of my life. And he was one of the, of course, the originator, Peter Grimes, with that unusual sounding voice. Yeah, he also no, sings on the Britain uh, recording the the prologue to um, Turn of the Screw, right? And I think he sings Peter Quid too. He does both roles. That's right. That's right. And Britain was a very fine conductor. That's what I hear. No, he was. He moved a lot in and out. If you watch him conduct, it's kind of an awkward thing. But he got look. He was such a great musician, and uh, they were a remarkable couple, the two of them. Um, when you're conducting, let's say. The turn of the screw. Talk about your entry into that. How are you finding your way to that musical point that you want to get to? It's been, you know, I I know the music quite well now, but it's been difficult because I don't have any emotional identification with any of the characters Mm. in Turn of the Screw. Mm -hmm. Really not. You know, in the way that I would with a Mozart opera or a Verdi opera or Puccini opera. By the way, I've conducted a lot of Wagner. I have that problem with Wagner characters, too. <laughs> well, I'm sure you do. And you know what? I really want to tell you, speak to you about something which is very dear to me, and I know it's very dear to you. And that's an identification with those composers who were in Theresienstadt and Schulhoff, who was in you know, the other, in, in France, and the concentration camp and so forth. These are the composers of the Shoah, during the Shoah period. Uh, some of whom I have almost a family connection to because Victor Ullmann went to school with one of my mentors, Joseph Brandstein, who was, you know, the great uh, writer of of, uh, words for Musica Eterna, for Fritz Waldman and so forth, and a teacher at Manus of of history, a student of Schoenberg. He was in Hochschule with Victor Ullmann. Victor Ullmann, Krasa, Gideon Klein. Pavel Haas. Pavel Haas and, of course, Schulhoff. I don't know if I've told you this, but I'm involved now in um, reconstituting the manuscripts of James Simon. Is that a name that means anything to you? He was a Theresienstadt composer Hmm. who was uh, murdered in Auschwitz in 1944, along with Ullmann, Krasa, Haas. And Klein. And he's written a couple of orchestral pieces one of them is called Achasfer, story of Achasferos. Yeah. And I think the Purim story. And we have somebody who's transcribing the manuscript wow. into a, on Sibelius or Finale. And right. I, I've been working on it even today. Good for you. And this was something you're going to do in Indiana? 
I hope so. I mean, right now the, the, the real emphasis is on BIPOC composers, and so I don't know if this will become a priority, but it, for me it's a big priority. Okay. And we've already commissioned Shulamit Ran to uh, write the first main stage uh, opera ever written on, based on the Diary of Anne Frank. There have only been chamber operas based on that theme. That's right. That's right. I didn't realize she was doing that. Well, um, that should be something. It's something I've looked at as well, but I, I feel I, I, it would be very impossible to do. Um, Jewish themes is an interesting subject because for some of us, we feel that we have to go to a different time, uh, the Shoah being a little too close, although my Requiem is based on Sephardic poetry of the Shoah. It's called Voices. In any event, um, Arthur, you have been a performing practical musician your entire life to this day and now with Atlanta and many other places but you also teach and you teach mm -hmm. in one of the best places in the country at Indiana University I mean and you have a great situation there I know I worked with Starker years ago and I know the people who worked there over the years and some uh, great names have been associated with Indiana um what is your? What do you think your role these days as a professor of music or instrumental conducting is in a place like Indiana? Well, I I think. Um, what can you give these students? I know what you can, but in your own words. You know, because my own developmental process as a conductor was a very long one. It took me a long. You know, I mean, some people are twenty five and they have everything together. It took me at least, you know many years and it's continuing now and I can relate to everybody's difficult everybody's difficulties whether it be their physical difficulties or their mental difficulties in, in learning and mm -hmm. learning scores also um, I think it's important for people, you know, in, in my case, I had the great opportunity to uh, work with many, many great European opera companies and orchestras and with many great European artists. So as you were in Europe, too, I think it gives you a different perspective. And I think we are a certain way imbued with a certain kind of tradition. And I mean tradition in a good sense. Having the experience of knowing how a German orchestra plays German music, how a Czech orchestra plays Czech no music. No question about it. How an Italian orchestra plays Czech. And all throughout those years, from the time I was in Frankfurt, when I was, you know, uh, working, even at that time, even before I was at the Met, working with Bergonzi and 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 and, and Great Sing, I'm talking Gobi, and I even coached Hans Hotter my first year there. Oh, Oscar Seisner. When, when he was, but it was a speaking role. It was Moses and Moses and Aaron. Right. But I mean, and I worked with Schwarzkopf, you know, I, 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 I conducted the final concert of her, um, of her master classes in Amsterdam, and and, pe and people really some of the great great singers and artists of the past. And that also in, you know includes many many soloists. I mean, I've conducted Starker, I've conducted Lazar Berman, I've conducted so many, you know, so 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 many Istomin, uh, mm -hmm. Browning, you know, so so many great people, Igor Oistrak, that um, I think you know, I've kind of I try to absorb the best of everybody. And and then I try to transmit it. And I think I have an obligation, both in terms of, of, of my conducting students, in terms of the orchestras, in terms of the in terms of the singers. So I feel, you know, that I have 
something to give and I want to give it, you know? Mm-hmm. Whether it's recognized as being of value is some another question altogether. But <laughs> well, we don't worry about that. But the giving is everything. And you've given so much in this brief time we've had together here on Interplay. Conductor Arthur Fagan, thank you so much for joining me today. It's been a pleasure. Let's stay in contact. Oh, we will. This is Michael Shapiro for Interplay. Thank you for joining us.